the BG Podcast. My name is AJ Bingham, CEO of Bingham Group. We have with us a very special guest, a colleague of mine out of the great state of Florida, uh, Jonathan Kilman, who is the founder and chairman of Converge Public Strategies. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I know this is a this is this is a long time coming. I know I think we tried to make this work during your the Florida session in the spring, and and you know we'll get to that too. Your firm's been very active and busy out there nationally, and. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to Jim O'Brien of The Political Life, because that's how Jonathan and I got connected. We were both on his show. Uh, for those who don't know, The Political Life is a show about lobbying, how lobbyists got in this profession. This episode is going to be a little different. We're going to be talking about the business of lobbying, not the politics of it, you know, politics is involved in everything, but how you think about yourself as an entrepreneur who's a lobbyist. I came across Jonathan, or at least on his show, was very entrepreneurial in the way he wanted to grow his firm. And they have grown substantially over the last uh, several year, three years. Um, and congrats on the rebrand as well. Um, but I want to get the start with that, Jonathan, your background into the lobby and up to Converge. And let's talk about this rebrand too. Sure. Happy to. I appreciate it. And absolutely got to give a shout out to Jim O'Brien. He's uh, you know, uh, a pioneer in his own right to uh, have created a podcast um, that caters to the entire industry. Uh, and I've watched what you've been doing as well. And I think there are just a few people out there who have tapped into the, uh, the idea that there are people who are interested in kind of our industry, our fields and what we do, and, uh, and, are, and they're, they're catering to an audience that doesn't otherwise have an outlet to learn about kind of the, the field that we're involved in. Uh, but for those people who are interested, it's great to have that, that resource. So congratulations to you and definitely a shout out to uh, Digital Brand. We'll put those links, our, both our shows, in the show notes. Uh, yeah, let's talk about real quick, though, your background, uh, your path into the lobby. Sure. Uh, it's a, it's a windy path. Uh, I always knew that I was interested in politics. Even as a kid, I was, you know, I grew up watching Cold War era movies uh, in the 80s uh, and imagining myself sitting at the table with these you know, diplomats and, you know, uh, and some of the movies were serious and some not serious, but they were all driven by this era that we were part of. And, and uh, uh, Family Ties was a TV show that I watched as a kid. Michael J. Fox. Mm-hmm. You know, Alex, Alex, I mean, you're, you're slightly a few years old, but it's Alex P. Keaton. Oh, right? uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he was APK, <laughs> and I'm APK. In my mind, I think I imagined that we were related somehow. Uh, you know, and uh, he would carry like a, a Richard Nixon lunchbox. You mm-hmm. know, so I didn't know what that meant other than I knew that he was interested in politics, you know. And, uh, and then growing up in the Reagan era, where there was this sort of very defined kind of uh, interest in the world as it was defined through the, the Reagan administration's lens, right? Sort of the evil and then there's the good. We were the good guys. And I you know, would see these people in these movies kind of sitting around the table and I imagine myself being involved in decisions and a part of things that are bigger than my own self-interest. And while that sounds kind of corny, it was really inspiring to me and watching all those movies. And at the same time, um, I was watching movies uh, during that era about, you know, business, you know, like Wall Street and entrepreneurship <laughs> That. So I had these two sparks that were in me driven by kind of these images that were portrayed in my mind. I was always attracted to TV shows like The West Wing uh, about politics. Uh, so that, that was kind of like these two interesting kernels of kind of my background. Uh, and, and when I came out of, uh, of undergrad, I was, I'd studied finance. No, no, no mistake there, right? Because the business side of me. Then I went to law school uh, with this idea of maybe getting involved in politics or diplomacy in some way. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that that was sort of of interest to me. But by the time I graduated law school, I saw professional opportunities um, that really were not involved in politics at all. And I, I went into uh, 
uh, being a mergers and acquisitions lawyer, doing uh, M&A, uh, securities, venture capital transactions uh, for a firm in Boston. Uh, there's a strong Wall Street presence or a global firm, uh, Scadden, Scadden Arms. Uh, and so I, I never thought I would kind of necessarily head back down the, the political or governmental path. Uh, as luck would have it, I had an opportunity to go down to Florida to represent the Speaker of the House in redistricting, which is, for those of you who don't follow politics as closely, is, you know, every 10 years the, uh, the census is done and, and then they balance, they attempt to rebalance districts at the state and federal level to match up the shifts in population. Uh, it's a big partisan fight in many respects. Uh, I it was outside counsel to the uh, Speaker of the House in Florida through a law firm uh, based here. Uh, I thought that was going to be a temporary stop. And then I kind of go back to my real life, so to speak, doing uh, M&A and maybe even going to investment banking. Uh, but, you know, once the political bug catches you, it, it, it really holds on to you uh, hard. And uh, so from there, I was uh, working as outside counsel through that firm uh, to Governor Bush's administration, a lot of his agencies, worked in the 2004 election cycle for anybody who, you know, who was alive and awake during uh, the 2000 election cycle to recall that Florida was kind of the, was, was ground zero for the political fight. And I think there's a sense that it could happen again in 2004. There were a lot of lawsuits we litigated, but none of that blew up to the level of 2000. I then was uh, general counsel to our, our uh, then governor, a gubernatorial candidate, Charlie Chris campaign for governor. He, he won. And I found myself at that point now, you know, several years deep into uh, kind of political law path, but I was watching out of the corner of my eye and seeing all these lobbyists, and they seemed to be much more directly involved in what was really happening in terms of policy making, et cetera. And I began to think, you know, I can get involved in policy making and kind of that getting back to that idea of doing being a part of things that are bigger than myself uh, by going down that path and still be able to make a living. Uh, and at that point, I was less inclined to want to run for office. I'd sort of been around it. And I thought, you know, I don't know that I want to throw myself in the ring in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, Same. So Same. Right. <laughs> you get it, right? Um, so I, I thought lobbying was an interesting way for me to sort of have my foot in and be able to participate in that political and policymaking process, do something maybe bigger than sort of an individual, you know, you know career path that, you know, is focused just on business. Uh, and the result was kind of a, being able to build a, a lobbying book and, and a career that's been really fulfilling and really rewarding and most recently a lot more entrepreneurial as well. Yeah, let's, let's jump into that. Just, you know, again, we can, I'll, I'll include your prior show in the political life to get a fuller view of uh, your path and lobby. But, you know, where we've really spoken with last, this last year about is just the business of this, right? You know, I think by and large, I mean, at least what I've seen in my experience, a lot of, this is very much a lifestyle profession for folks in the sense of, you know, it's, it's a secret, but it's single, single shingle, you know, maybe two or three people, never going to be bigger than that, never be bigger than, you know, 20 or so clients and so on. Um, you rarely see, I think, you know, in the firms that are, the, the firms that are expansionists are typically already the, the names out there, um, Aiken Gump and, you know, Greenberg and everything else, right? Having I guess, the upstart firms growing in, in with the expansionist view, if you will, are, you just don't see that a lot in our industry. Either firms, people like us would just, join a bigger firm that's already huge or, you know, a law firm that has a, a, a huge lobbying presence in DC or other state capitals. And that's kind of it, right? You don't see a lot of, you still see a lot of upstart entrepreneur, entrepreneurialism in our profession. Sure. And, and I think that's where we connected because day one for me was, the Bingham group was 
that's where I want to go. I mean, it was me, it was the AJ show for as long as it needed to be, but we are making moves to grow. And, you know, when I, when I heard your show and the way you spoke, it was just really, it just took, you know, it struck a chord with me and um, just the way you think about the business of this and love to get into that. Just, you know, what was the thing that made you want to start your own firm? Yeah, there were a a whole bunch of factors that kind of coalesced for me. Uh, In part, it was when I started practicing uh, or or working as a lobbyist, I actually was primarily a lawyer in Tallahassee, which is, you know, the the capital of Florida. I lived about 15 minutes from the capital. You know, know, years later, I now live in Miami, eight eight hours from the capital. Uh, And uh, for me, I wanted to be able to think about a future where I was able to maybe leverage other people to be a part of the firm. And I wasn't necessarily the person going back and forth constantly. I still do. I, I spent a lot of time in the capital in Tallahassee. Uh, but I realized that in my old firm format, which was a law firm format, it didn't really permit the, the sort of leveraging. So that was one. Uh, two, I was, you know, was a partner of that firm. It was a big international firm, about 1,600 lawyers. Uh, I was co-chair of the government practice uh, uh, here in Florida. And I felt like in many respects, I'd sort of hit my ceiling. Uh, in, in that, in terms of what I can accomplish in that environment. Uh, and then three, the, the sort of uh, lingering entrepreneur in me always wanted to go and build something bigger. Uh, what's the next thing I can build? Uh, not because uh, I want the ego boost, because I wanted the experience of building something. And I felt like I hadn't really done that. And I knew that, you know, in my early 40s, it was sort of at that stage there that I was either going to do it or I was never going to do it. Right, because right. I, I think I'd sort of say, "Hey, you know what? Things are going well for me. You know, why why mess up a good thing?" This was sort of the last stage of my life that I was going to take a, a big leap like that, uh, and I felt like all the stars aligned. So, for kind of all those reasons, uh, and you know, the desire to, as an entrepreneur, be able to sort of architect my life as well. And you mentioned sort of a lot of lobbyists think of it as a sort of a lifestyle business. I think you can grow to scale and still have it be consistent with your lifestyle. You just have to be really intentional about that. Wanting to spend time with my kids, wanting to take vacations, all those things really mattered to me. Being able to build a life that was sort of on my own terms was important. And a platform for other people who felt the same way. And, and that I think is what was my mindset to scale, which is what can I build that makes sense for me, but then makes sense for lots of other people who think like I do. Mm-hmm. I know, again, referencing your uh, the political life show, you talk about even the, the structure of your firm and I mean, how you, it was more just, it wasn't a typical firm even before pre-COVID, right? Uh, talk about that, just in terms of the way you work with your team, how you communicate with your team. Um, again, these are all things, again, you know, just if you can, I was taking notes on, like, oh, I want, I, <laughs> I pulled my car on the side, like, I, 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 I said to my associates at the time, like, we got to do more of these things or put this out there. Uh, but I mean, that was, this is again, pre COVID before, you know, everyone was working from home and decentralized. Right. But talk about that. Yeah. We, we've always been results focused. And, uh, and also one of the things that we, we sort of set our mind on was, you, know, you talked about sort of the traditional firm model might be sort of either state focused, maybe local focused, or maybe DC focused. Uh, there aren't a lot of firms that are multi-jurisdictionally uh, uh, capable, which is a mouthful, but, what I mean by that is to say, you know, particularly if you're working with a lot of kind of venture-backed firms or, te- or technology-driven or innovative firms, they want to be able to scale and scale quickly to maybe you know, 15 or 20 markets, but they don't necessarily have the capability to do that in-house. I wanted to build a firm that had the talent to be able to operate and support people 
who needed that kind of growth and needed to be able to deal with government relations matters in 15, 20, 30 jurisdictions or across the country. And we've been fortunate to be able to attract the kind of talent that can actually do that. An example, Brad Nail, who uh, leads our multi-state practice, he was at, at Uber, where he had a big multi-state portfolio and worked in, I think, over 40 states over a period of five years, uh, working on behalf of Uber. Uh, and we have attracted others with that kind of background since. And, and, um, and when you begin to think like that, geographically distributed, you become a lot less fixated on kind of a local office type of mindset and more about a collaborative and communicative mindset, right? Uh, it's more important that Brad and I are able to work really well together by Zoom or by phone when he's in Arizona and I'm in Miami than it is for me to worry about whether we see each other at 9 a.m. in the same office every day, you know, day after day. If that were our mindset, we wouldn't be able to support clients that need that kind of help. We wouldn't be able to scale the way we've scaled. Uh, and, and so for us, it's more a matter of driving a culture of collaboration that allows us to operate really well together, regardless of where people are. I don't think, and I think you mentioned sort of the COVID effect. I think if you had a culture of collaboration that enabled you to work well in that way before COVID, COVID had a lot less negative impact on your ability to function. Mm -hmm. uh, granted, it may have impacted your supply side or demand side for your business, but if those two factors weren't hurt, then really what enabled you to succeed was your ability to collaborate remotely or in a sort of distributed fashion. That was already built into our DNA. So our firm, while we certainly took a pause and a breather to understand what, what the impact of COVID was going to be on us, it didn't actually hurt us. In fact, we thrived uh, during this period, I believe in part because of the culture that was already built before COVID happened. And I think it's sort of the secret sauce to our ability to continue to grow and will be our, our, our secret sauce to continue to grow. I do think though, at, you know, sort of, you know, on the, on the flip side of that, I think companies that are now sort of completely abandoning the idea of office, but they've not figured out how to build culture and drive culture. Yeah. And they're going to hire people on to, to work remotely. And I hear companies doing that. If they don't have something in place to really drive culture, I think that's going to be really hard uh, because I think, the, the new employees that are on board and work remotely, they don't know how to meet the expectations of that firm. The firm doesn't know how to necessarily train them on how to meet those expectations, how to collaborate together, that sort of natural flow that occurs when the culture is really well understood among the, uh, among the team. So that's been a really big factor for our success. And I think anybody who's looking to grow to scale, it sounds, again, it it's almost sounds cliche. Culture really does matter. And we built a, a firm where our compensation model is built to support collaboration, where our mindset is built on collaboration. We talk about collaboration with each other. We talk to our clients about the fact that we collaborate and we just keep on pushing that over and over again. It just becomes part of who you are. Yeah. Do you all have, I mean, one of the things I think about even we're distributed is still having some kind of either regular, you know, in-person meetings or not in-person meetings, just base touches, right? We're just to see people, I mean, you are more, more distributed across the state and multi-jurisdictional, but do y'all, you factor in um, those kind of base touches in person just to, I mean, just to, just to see your team in person? I'll give you a few, a few examples. Uh, in July of last year, kind of in the height of, you know, everyone had been locked down for a few months, it was getting on everybody's nerves. You know, the quarantine had sort of driven everybody crazy. 
I was fortunate. I took a trip with my, my wife and kids to Michigan. And I remember I'm sitting out in the kayak in the middle of a lake and realizing this is the best I've felt in months. And I began to think about the people in my firm, particularly the people who were single, didn't have families, and how they were by themselves all day long. And at the most they were communicating was sort of intermittently by Zoom with, uh, with each other, uh, with me, my client, with clients. And I realized that human connectivity was going to be that spark that got everybody sort of invigorated again. Uh, so I, I you know, sent an email out and uh, took nine of the, our firm's leaders to, uh, to Asheville, North Carolina. Oh, and, nice. Uh, Another January. That was good. Biltmore? Great, great we didn't say the Biltmore. We got a few Airbnbs, which particularly with COVID worked really well. Uh, you know, we took several hikes. Uh, we did urban hikes. We hiked up a mountain. We kayaked down a river together. Got together, went to breweries, sat around and reconnected as human beings. And I would say our productivity as a result of that trip skyrocketed. Uh, it's that human connection that you just can't replicate. Uh, so the fact that we're able to work in this distributed fashion doesn't mean that we aren't human beings that don't, you know, we still require that kind of human connectivity. We recently onboarded two new partners, uh, one of which is a Jacksonville partner and others from an office we haven't announced yet. Uh, and we wanted to begin to integrate them into the firm. So we flew them into Miami and flew in a couple of other partners from the firm and you know, sat you know, seven or eight of us around a table and spent um, an entire work day in the evening and then the following kind of first half of the day, getting them around a table, talking about our firm culture, how we work together and the kind of clients we represent. Begin, began to talk about, here's clients we should introduce you to. They talked about clients of theirs that they want to introduce, introduce the rest of the firm to. The next morning, we went out for breakfast together, invited the client of the firm to come. That client actually is now hiring and uh, expanding our, our firm's relationship to engage both of those offices uh, as well. That's the kind of collaboration that I you know that, that is, is really uh, consistent in our firm. Uh, and, and so to your point, you, you can't ignore that interactivity. Uh, I just don't think you need to have it every single day in this no. homogenous format. But if it never happens, you do not succeed. I don't know how you can succeed. Yeah, we're moving an office out here in Miami, a new office that you know is going to accommodate those of us who live here. It's going to be a twenty-nine foot long conference room, uh, which is the biggest room in that office, specifically so we can sit around the table and collaborate. And I, so I do believe in that it is important. Uh, I just don't believe in doing it in the most rigid structure, especially in a business like ours, where a lot of time, if we're sitting out in our office behind a desk, yeah, right? yeah, that was a thing too. Like pre-COVID, I mean, I, I wasn't a fan of remote working. I mean, there are times when you're you're on, you're in, it wasn't remote. It was I was in the field and I was, you know, I kind of gauged my productivity by how much I wasn't at my desk, right? Really and good. you know, you can do work, bring my laptop, go to go to council, wherever you need to go, have your phone on you, and everything else. Um, I, this is, you know, I, with, with the onset of uh, quarantine, I got rid of my office space and, you know, I have a, I, thankfully we have a dedicated home office, but I see the flexibility of it because also ultimately as things are opening back up now here, you know, as long as you know, our, our work is so task oriented, right? Either something's done or it's not, there's not a lot of, you know, fall through the crack kind of things. Like it, it's in someone's hands to do. And so I don't have to be in the office with you to, to see you do it. Uh, one of my it's challenges I'm working with, not challenges, just one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm working to develop is recognizing as we're onboarding new talent, you know, associates and, and interns, how am I, you know, as the, as the leader and owner, 
being present for them and giving them that training. Cause I think that's the one thing when you're, it, it, it's, and I guess right now it, it could be, if I'm in a meeting with someone, bring on a Zoom call with me, but it's, it's having them there when we that phone call, right? Like they can just come to my office, hear me on that, just hear the, the pattern kind of break down. Of, Moving by observing is, is yeah, which is how, which is how, I mean, honestly, you know, like, honestly how I, I picked up a lot of, I mean, everything I learned, right? Just being in all these meetings, constantly seeing the patterns of, the, you know, the words that were said and the order they were said and so on, you know, over enough time that you get a sense for the language of this business. Um, I think those just, for me, it's just being more thoughtful and how I, how I do that, recognizing those, those kind of instantaneous things, like calling someone in to hear a phone call, a good call or a bad call, you know, I kind of put more effort in that, but I think that, that's probably something that for, for any, any, sir, any business, right, that you're thoughtful of, um, it's something I've I think more than most professions, you really can't learn what we do in a, in a classroom. It's learning by doing and learning by observing. Um, and when you see people that you're either mentoring or, or helping kind of along in their career, when you see them replicate sort of those patterns as you described it, it's really rewarding because you realize, oh, this is working. It's, you know, it's connecting. And sometimes what's even more rewarding is you see them do it and take it to another level. You had it. Mm -hmm. had it and that's, that's, that's better. That's great. Yeah, um, I want to get to this because uh, it was a note I didn't want to talk to you about. But my, what's 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 hot with Miami? What's up with Miami? What's I know Miami. <laughs> I mean, Austin and Miami, right? I mean, this is it. this is something I think originally we had planned on speaking, you know, earlier in the spring, but nothing stopped with our two cities um, in terms of uh, the you know the buzz, there were the relocations, and, and things going on there. I mean, I definitely been a fan of your mayor. Uh, I think your mayor and our mayor uh, were on a, a clubhouse not too long ago together. Um, and uh, yeah, so just to be, I'd love to just, well, you're on the ground in Miami, right? I actually, I'm, I'll be there in January, but, or January for a wedding, but what, what, you know, you're on the ground there from the lobby's, lobby's perspective, you know, just what's, what's hot in Miami? This is the best time to be in Miami. Yeah. Uh, first of all, when you come to, to Miami, I hope we're going out for, uh, for dinner. Oh, no, that's, that's also a business trip. <laughs> so. uh, well, for, you know, first, uh, you, you mentioned our mayor, uh, Francis Suarez. It, it, Miami is a, a, a city mayor and a county mayor. Um, city mayor, Francis Suarez, uh, you know, we don't have a strong mayor system. Uh, the county mayor is a strong mayor system in government, so very different roles. Significant portion of Miami-Dade County is unincorporated, uh, and so you have 13 commissioners who have a significant amount of power uh, and influence within their own their own districts. At the, local, at the city level, though, uh, the mayor's power is largely driven by his ability to uh, coalesce local opinion and local support, right? And historically, that's probably been more geared toward local policy. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's likely that we've had a mayor. And again, I've, I've been in Miami uh, for almost nine years, uh, so I can't speak to, you know, 50 years ago, I, you know, I, I've been certainly paying attention closely to Miami for the last you know, several decades. Uh, but I've been an official resident of Miami for you know for the last eight nine years. Watching Suarez real realize his talent and way of utilizing his position as mayor was not just focused on local policy, but on becoming and, and, and calling him a cheerleader would be undermining the value of this role. It's helping him. It, it's. He's translating the value proposition of Miami and Florida, but particularly Miami, uh, to the business community globally, uh, and then serving as the entry point for a lot of those people to have meaningful conversations about 
the opportunity to do business in one of the most dynamic regions of the world, international region for sure, gateway to the Americas. Miami was always the gateway to the Americas, but yesterday, as I was having coffee with uh, a colleague of mine, you know, I'm looking around, I'm at this coffee shop, I was only there for, for a few minutes, but as I was there, I heard Hebrew, I heard Russian, I heard Spanish. Uh, that's an international city. Whereas 10 years ago, I think Miami called itself their international, but was really a Latin American hub. Mm -hmm. uh, today is meaningfully international. Uh, Europeans, Asians uh, have, have, have begun to you know, seriously invest here. And what, what Mayor Suarez has done has really helped kind of capture a moment, but as he would say, it's not just a moment, it's a movement. Uh, there's this tweet that uh, went viral in 2020, December 2020, where someone said effectively on Twitter, hey, everyone, you know, what do you say we move Silicon Valley to Miami? And the mayor responds, how can I help? Mm -hmm. That tweet went viral, organic, over 2 million impressions, I think like 2.5 million impressions relatively quickly. And it did because I think if you look at the places that have had this you know, kind of huge breakout successes over the last 50 years, Silicon Valley, New York, uh, in tech in particular, but obviously also in capital markets, whether it's venture, venture capital, hedge funds, et cetera, uh, I think the people who lead those businesses have become used to environments where they feel a certain hostility uh, from government. And for a variety of reasons, which, you know, the reasons aren't all the same and they're not, not all, you know, monolithic, but I think there was a general sense of frustration, at least among some in those markets and maybe some other markets uh, that would, were bubbling beneath the surface. And you had places like Austin that were growing for years, Miami were growing for years, and were just ready to capture that, those people who are frustrated and ready to look elsewhere. Yeah, and a lot of them are coming from Bay Area and Seattle and all the... <laughs> It's a lot. Of, I mean, it can, you know, kind of putting a you know a name of some of these, these these areas, right? It's just there's there is really outright hostility to business, and I think it's you want your government to be balanced. But particularly in the Bay Area, we had um, a representative, you know, one of the the policy lead for San Francisco's tech community um, on the show uh, earlier in the spring, and, and you know, you look at some of the votes their board supervisors takes. And it's almost like you, you know, you realize who you're who's funding the city is. Are companies coming out of that those communities? They find themselves emerging in a marketplace that is oftentimes antagonistic to their business practices, yeah. uh, which is really interesting to consider. You know that they're employing, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in their region, yet the local electeds in those markets are not friendly to their business models. They actually look elsewhere for growth. I actually saw a statistic that uh, said in 2020, 40% more people moved to Miami than left Miami, whereas in San Francisco, uh, it was over two times as many people left uh, San Francisco as came into San Francisco. Now, I haven't validated the statistic. I think it was in a, it was in a business uh, article I read. Uh, assuming that's true, it's not surprising. Uh, and it's not just San Francisco. I mean, I'm, I'm coming across people here in recent months from Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Seattle. Uh, and it's, it's tech founders, it's venture capital, uh, venture capitalists or other forms of investment uh, entity uh, leaders. Uh, 
And the, the big question people ask, and you may hear this in, in uh, Austin, although I, I think Austin's further along the curve, and so it probably doesn't come up as much, but people you know, ask me, and I hear it so often, is this really sustainable? Is this real? Or is this kind of a, a good marketing thing that's kind of temporary? I don't see how it can be temporary when the sheer number of companies I've seen moving here are taking out multi-year leases and recruiting hundreds of new employees. Venture capital firms are taking out huge you know, leases and long-term leases in buildings and moving people here and hiring people. It's hard to imagine that's, that's a temporary move when you're making those kinds of investments. It seems very real. Uh, it's affected the real estate market. That's real. The commercial real estate market has been affected significantly. That's real. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the residential market has been affected. That, that's real. Uh, so I think the answer to the question is, is this real? Should be absolutely yes. The only question is, where do we go from here? How big does it get? What's the, the character of it? And I think that the cool thing is that's fun, a fun thing that we get to be a part of. Yeah, and I would say on Austin side, it's, you know, I've been here most of my life and it, it's been like a, it's a, a, a slow burn of technology though. I mean, it was, you know, there's always been tech or tech presence here um, in part because of UT and then it's, you know, the government as well. But I think, uh, I mean, this last year, right? I mean, the people have been moving here regardless, um, you know, before it was, you know, before South by or ACL Fest were going on, thankfully those are both coming back this year in 2022. But it was just, yeah, I saw this last year, the cranes didn't stop here, right? And definitely, on the, you know, we had the, the CEO for the Board of Realtors on our show as well in the spring. They, they had, a, besides one quarter, probably the Q1 or Q2 of last year, it was, this year rather, you know, it's been a banner year. I mean, home sales here, you know, people are coming people out, out of the market are buying them for 100000 overpriced. And it's, you know, yeah. Than, cash, right? Yeah. I think too, you know, we both, I think both are, both our states, you know, are, are, are fielding questions about climate change, you know, the last, this last quarter in this quarter. I think even with that, though, I mean, it's it, it's there's just something about I think it's more of the state, our state's policies as well. That's drawing people here. Right. You're looking for the, you're looking for those populations coming from, from you. It's, well, I'm sure a lot of Northeast, a lot of New York and those taxes. Going. We're a low tax state. Mm-hmm. That has an open open uh, effort from leadership, particularly at the state level, to try and um, mitigate the effects of you know uh, excessive regulation on business. Uh, I don't think that means that we you know we're, we're the wild west. Sometimes I think you know, there's a there's some caricatures around. That's people. probably us. That's, I don't know if you saw the our legislature. We vote. There's a uh, comes September first. We have a permitless carry. You still need a background check. We can just carry. So you know we're I think we're the wild west at this point. Yeah, I don't think Florida's the Wild West. I think, you know, as I, you know, as I said, you know, there are t- sometimes kind of caricatures around Florida. I think Florida's a very dynamic state. We're a very big state, like Texas, really diverse population. It's kind of inevitable that you're going to see sort of all things happen here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how we've gotten this sort of, you know, occasional... Uh, a Florida um, man. Yeah, the Florida man sort of, you know, mean, uh, you know, I, I mean, I get it, but truth be told, uh, there's a lot of serious business happening here, a lot of really interesting activity, getting more and more diverse by the day. And for people like for like people like you and and, and for people like me and, and the, my colleagues here, we get to be a part of this because this growth requires uh, policy making to help help support it. And decisions have to be made at the local level around infrastructure, 
uh, sometimes around issues like incentives uh, and, and any manner of policies around the ways in which the businesses that we work with interact uh, with at the state level, with people at the you know, local level, uh, sometimes with directly with government, if you're talking about GovTech, that sort of stuff. And so it creates amazing opportunities for us to be directly involved in that. And I think there's some, something about it that for people like us, that allows us to feel like we're involved in building our communities in a positive way. That's really exciting to be a part of it and, and feel like we can make a difference. Uh, and it makes you feel like you're not just a, a resident here, you're part of building what's happening here. And that's, that's really cool. I think really in a lot of ways what motivates us that's the entrepreneurial spirit. Making money is great, uh, but it's that thing that motivates you, that makes it exciting and fun. That I, I was actually, I, I went to Honduras for some business uh, over the last couple of days, was traveling with a colleague. Uh, we came back and, you know, we're driving back from the airport. And I said, you know, really have to sit back and think about the fact that we chose this profession, right? We, we chose this career and we get to do it really cool, really fun stuff. And sometimes you get fixated on, on making money and so you think of that as the ROI and you don't spend enough time thinking about the fact that we got to choose to do something that we thought would be fun. And man, it's really fun. And it, you know, it's, it's more and more fun the more you get to do stuff that's unique and interesting and exactly in that path. I, I didn't think about lobbying until my 3L year. When I realized I didn't want to be an attorney, I wanted to just, you know, leverage what I had learned and, and paid for the last three years and was looking, just researching other other pathways. And the two things that stood out were being an agent, a talent agent, and being a lobbyist. And when I looked at, when I, when I unboxed, you know, me as a, you know, a service, like me, you know, is what do I have at the table and where do I stand relative to my classmates? And where do I seem to excel at? You know, it was just the, the network ability. But for those of us who excel in kind of oral advocacy, and that interpersonal form of advocacy, I think lobbying is a natural fit, but not something, I don't recall a single conversation during law school. No. A professor or anybody in the law school said, you know, there's this alternative path where you get to engage in significant oral advocacy and put those skills to work called lobbying. Take a look. And as lucrative, if not more. <laughs> Yeah. And that was the thing. I think uh, I'm like, oh, you know, because law, law school also is a teacher. Well, maybe it's shifted in the last decade, but entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I, I talked to friends, particularly in dental school. They had, you know, there were certain things they had to go out and sell their services and get, you know, do certain procedures, but they go there and find someone who would get them to let them perform those on them. Us, it's, there's no, some schools might have a small, you know, small office uh, elective, but they're not teaching you how to go like, just you as a product, even with, even with your big, a big law firm, maybe they put that, I mean, they, I didn't work for a big law firm, but I was told big, big schools typically put that on big law, the firms to teach you how to be, how to do biz dev. And I think this advantage is, you know, for some people, depending on your life track, you cope in a world where you know that language already. I didn't cope in that world. I figured it out just going to the school, the undergrad I went to and, you know, being a fraternity and everything else, just how it all works. And once I knew those, once I knew those rules, the unwritten rules, everything flowed from there right but as a you know especially as a black lobbyist there's you know there's not a lot there's not a, this this profession is probably at least as lead or less diverse than the law right mm -hmm. because it's so relationship based and it's not like okay you study hard go to, go to law school pass the bar that there's no track into this you know you don't have to have a law degree and we both do you don't have to have one 
but you're right. It's not something that's talked about a lot. Um, one of the things I've been, you know, really focused on since I've been back in Austin, when I go to career days for, you know, grade school, middle school, and high school, and, and college is saying, this is what this business is. And most people don't know lobbyists. So, you're, you know, you, you might know someone, you see someone on TV, well, this is what the business is. And this is how you get into it. You know, and definitely when I look at my internship recruiting and, you know, the associates I'm trying to recruit, I'm all, I want talent, but I do have an eye for recognizing um, both in gender and in race, there's not a lot of, you know, and how can I bring more diversity in the profession? Because it's beyond, you know, the money, it's fun. Right. It's very fun. It can be. And look, you, you said it right. There's not a lot of role models in sort of popular culture for what a lobbyist is. Uh, you know, Brian Jordan, like, very rest in peace, right? That was the guy I was like, Vernon Jordan was the dude, right? He's, he's the dude, period. But I didn't have a lot of people I could look up to who look like me who were operating at the highest level or even the mid-level, you know? Exactly. Highest level. But every picture you saw of Vernon Jordan was of him playing golf, right? With mm-hmm. him, right? And uh, I, I, there wasn't a lot of discussion about what he was doing behind the scenes, right? So you heard about how powerful he was and how connected he was and how you know, much money he made. And you saw him on a golf course. But there wasn't a lot of discussion around... What does he actually do? How does he produce value for people? How do you get into that role? What did he do to get there? And so I think you, know, you serve as a great role model because you're willing to talk about, this is exactly what I do. This is what lobbyists do. This is how we provide value to our clients. And this is how we provide value in the public policy-making process, right? Because I think we add value. Uh, if you were to go to court, uh, you know, if you're a, a, a criminal defendant or a civil litigant, uh, would you show up without a lawyer? You know, you could, but you don't know the process very well, and your outcome likely isn't going to be as good as it would be with a professional lawyer representing you. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say the same is true in the policymaking process or in the regulated industry process, where for most of our clients, their primary focus is in producing a widget or providing a service. You know, engaging in regulated regulated activities uh, or, or engaging with regulators or engaging in the policymaking process is not what they do, right? And so uh, it makes perfect sense that they would like to outsource that to someone who spends their day doing that and understands the process, knows what works, knows what doesn't work. And so I think there's a way to describe lobbying in a way that's meaningful, that's understandable, um, that can uh, that can help young people interested in the profession understand why it could be something worthwhile doing. That's very different than I think. Either if you look at the at a lobbyist through the lens of popular culture, I think the perception is either it's really glamorous or it's really corrupt. There's nothing about it that is described in positive ways about the advocacy that we do. So a lot of times on behalf of nonprofits uh, or, or other interests and. Or, or, or even on behalf of for-profit interests, but still adding value to the process. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know your willingness to go and do recruiting, explain what we really do, is actually a, a service. I remember one of the first questions that I got when I was in this, and still now, is just you know who do you represent, and are they good or bad? I'm like, it's just it's it, you know I think because everyone has it's a black and white thing, and people don't recognize that every interest out there, whether you call them a lobbyist or an advocate or what you want to call it. They have at least one person, more or, more or less, more likely than not, on their team who's doing that work, right? Um, and responsible for telling their story, and that's their job. 
And yeah. sometimes they do it internally, sometimes they outsource it. That's our job, right? Is to tell a person a, a person story or a company story so that it helps explain why they want a policy to be a certain way. And if they they have good arguments and their story makes sense, they have a shot. So why would you not want to hire someone who's very good at telling that story? In my career now doing this over a couple of decades, I think the perception that there's this sort of constant flow of money where a check gets handed to one person and then a policy just happens to go that way. In my experience, and I can only speak to, you know, to my experience, I have not frequently seen this sort of you know, instant kind of quid pro quo that I think people believe is out there. That isn't to say it's not happening. Uh, I'm, I'm willing to say I don't see it happening with me and my colleagues in the way that it's perceived. I think instead what I see is that we represent clients who support candidates who they believe are naturally aligned with their point of view uh, and with whom they feel like they can have a reasonable conversation. I think everybody out there should support candidates that you believe shares your point of view. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, if you start with that premise and you then want to look at the ways in which candidates should be allowed to raise money, that's a reasonable conversation. I think that's a conversation that should happen very regularly. I think anytime you see something anywhere close to a quid pro quo, you should run. Mm. And, if, and if you ever talk to a lobbyist who implies the possibility that they have the, the access, the ability to engage in those sorts of instant, you know, and again, whether it's instant or otherwise, I think I should put a qualifier in there. Any sort of quid pro quo, you should run. Um, you're probably wearing a wire too. So you probably. Someone <laughs> give you wearing a wire, but look, it's just. It's not a part of our, prof- it, it, it is not a part of our profession, the way that I envision it, I think the way that you envision it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that isn't to say that it doesn't happen out there. I think it's to say, I've been doing just fine building a really successful firm. You've been doing just fine building a really successful firm without engaging in any of that sort of stuff. Like, I like people, like it's a lot of phone calls and emails and, ta- and texts <laughs> trying to reach, look at me, please. Get five to five minutes. The strongest lobby, I think, locally of any in any city is our neighborhoods too, which is the funniest. The people, people, uh, you know, here they talk a lot about the developer lobby. I'm sure I'm, I, I have no doubt the same in Miami, but like those the neighborhoods are the strongest lobby in any in any city in America. Neighborhoods as a whole are the strongest lobby. Any state, any state. It's a matter of galvanizing and organizing those voices. I will tell you. Uh, when I'm working on a bill and I'm able to build a, a coalition of kind of a grassroots coalition uh, of stakeholders to communicate directly with their uh, constituents because they believe in something, that is far more powerful than any corporate interest I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just can overwhelm any corporate interest. And so uh, I'm a big believer in coalition uh, building and stakeholder engagement and grassroots activations uh, as a means of really communicating what people want. Uh, uh, and I, I, I believe in that fervently. I think we've seen that it works. And what's great, just like the internet has been the great equalizer in uh, in political uh, campaigns, you know, we've seen campaigns where it's not just the person who has the most money winning now. Mm-hmm. The internet has made it so a person who has the best message, who is able to capture a movement, can win. I think the same is true of the lobbying world. And that's why, if you look at our firm, you mentioned earlier our rebrand. 
we became we went from being called converged government affairs to converged public strategies because our, our firm encompasses government relations, communications, and digital solutions. I think today's lobbying requires at the highest level the ability to operate in all of those spheres simultaneously to communicate to the public, to activate them so that policymakers hear directly from constituents what they want. That's really powerful. And I think for those people who are worried about uh, the effect of money in politics, I think knowing that the world is changing in a way where someone with less resources, but is able to get to tell a really good story and get their message out there has the ability to activate grassroots in a way that can drive policy. That's what this was all about. That's what representative democracy is always about. Technology is enabling it in a way that it never was before. And it's, I believe, also the great equalizer. And I think you need, you need a phone and the audio and video and boom and upload and it goes. Well, Jonathan, I know we, we could talk for hours on about this stuff. I'd love to have you back on the show. Jonathan Kilman is the founder and chairman of Converge Public Strategies. Thank you for your time. Thanks. Always appreciate talking to you. Look forward to talking to you again and having you. Bye. Thank you.